ready? Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam, Borei pri Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech olam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. All of that. <laughs> now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and I pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruchu, the call to worship. Baruchu et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ba'eli Madonai Michamocha Nedar Bakodesh Norate Hilot O Sefele 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech haYeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et Hashabbat la'asot et Hashabbat la'doratam berit olam b'nei Ovayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Keshishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Aronai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Vashinantam levanecha, vidibartabam, vashivtacha, babethcha, uvlechtecha, viderech, uvshuchbecha, uvkumicha. Ukshartam leot al yedecha, vahayu letotafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. For all our days, Lord, that we would praise you, that we would sing of your glory, Yahweh Elohim.
Shalom, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Uh, this Sabbath, our portion is, we're coming to the conclusion of the book of Numbers. Our portion comes to us from Numbers uh, chapter 30, and the portion is entitled Matot, which means vows. And whereas the majority of this portion is really not about that subject, it's simply the introductory uh, portion to it. It gives us instruction about uh, how special vows are before God. I have um, shared this uh, several times when I've had the opportunity to to people to understand that when you speak, which is a very powerful thing that you do, you speak in three time zones. You can speak about the past, you can speak into the future, or the present, I should say, or you can speak into the future. There are many modes of speech that have to do with the past. For example, if you're explaining something, you're still talking about the past. You're talking about things that have happened or have happened in the past. And the vast majority of conversations that people have when they sit and they chat with each other, they're talking about things in the past. You know, an old guy like me, if you want a lesson in that, just sit down with me, and I'll tell you all about my life and all about my past. And, and since I was a military veteran, I'll tell you some sea stories. And so it's, none of it has to do with the present. None of it has to do with what's going to be in the future. It all is about the past. And that's where most people communicate with and so forth. Let me go ahead and just say to you, if all you do is sit around and talk about the past, you're really not going to change much of anything, and you're not going to improve anything. And uh, it, quite honestly, it's just a kind of a fun exercise, but it's, it's kind of vanity. The second mode, which is in the present tense, is defined now down to about three things. You can assert a fact, state a fact. That's in the present tense. This is a fact. This is truth here. Um, you can make a request. I would like to have so-and-so do this for me. Okay, that's something that's working in the present. Or you can give a promise or a response to the request, and that is things that's being done in the present. All work, if you're going to interact with other people and you're going to accomplish something, is going to be on those three modes of speech. You're going to assert facts, you're going to ask good questions, and you're going to make promises. That's how things get done. In the business world, if you go into a business meeting, if the person who's really moderating the meeting has to keep this in mind, don't let the meeting drift off into a big, long discussion about the past. For example, if you've got a little bit of a conflict, don't spend your energy trying to figure out who's to blame. Let's get on to the solution. What, what is the present status? What is it that we need to do? Uh, would you be able to do that? I promise I will fix this part. Now you're fixing things. Now you're making things happen. Uh, those three forms of speech are all where all the work gets done 
in the present sense. You remember when the Lord talked about, he said, let your yes be a yes, let your no be a no. He's talking about working in the present. Ask and you will receive. He's talking about how does your faith work? Your faith doesn't work by you sitting around making a bunch of theological explanations of stuff. Your faith works when you ask God for things and you listen to what God has promised and you act on it and it becomes a fact in your life. Now things are happening. Now things are going to take place. The last mode of speech, which is into the future, and that's the reason why our Torah portion addresses this, is called a vow. With a vow, covenants are made. Nations are come into existence. Things happen that are created by the spoken word that didn't exist before. When a young couple comes and they make vows of marriage, they walk in as two individual people at the start of the ceremony. We hear their vows, and suddenly the covenant of marriage is in place, and they walk away, and they're an item. They are a single family, and everybody who witnessed it saw them as two individuals, but now they know they're together, and they, nobody questions that. And the reason we don't question it is because that's how powerful a vow is. It created the covenant of marriage. It, create, it changed the creation. God tells us we need to be extremely careful when we make vows. And here's the reason why. Just as God spoke and the creation came to be, he's given us the power to speak and alter his creation. Now, the purpose of that is to do something good. It's to make a change where something good is going uh, to take place. And he recognizes the authority of the vow, and so he tells you to be very careful. You be very careful when you make an oath, when you take a vow, uh, when you make a declaration of that type. One of the things you have to teach people to be wise is be careful how you speak when you're going to do something or not going to do something. You can make a promise to go do something, you can state a fact, I am going to, but if you take it to the level of vow, I declare to you that I'm definitely going to do this, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? You know, God allows you to change his creation, and then he holds you to it. The problem with a vow is there's no dotted line in there where it says cut here to end it. There's no tear point. When you make a vow and you break it, the best description I can give to you is it rips the fabric of your soul and shreds you, shreds your inner person. And that's the reason why divorce is so tragic, is this tears the souls of the people that are involved. It shreds them, and, and, and at that point, that's a perpetual wound that just is going to always stay there. You know, there's, there's no going in and hemming that back up again. It, it, you're, you're going to live with the results of it. And so God is telling us to be very careful about it. Now, this particular portion gives some additional instructions about vows. And it says the following. It says that a man, the head of the household, one of the things that he has the authority to do if his wife 
or his daughter makes a vow that the father, the husband, has the authority to protect his wife and protect his daughter, that if he believes they've made a vow uh, that is not achievable, is inappropriate, on the day he hears of it, he can annul that vow and uh, essentially make it as though it was never spoken. And God specifically says, I will not hold it to of any account. It's like there has to be this certification from the spiritual covering. Now, if he hears the vow and he does not object to it, in other words, he lets it go, on the very next day, God says, now I'm going to hold you to it. The father has the authority to annul the vow if on the day he hears of it, he thinks it's not appropriate or not advisable or not safe for his wife or for his daughter. In the tradition of marriage, when the father comes and presents the bride, one of the questions that's posed by a traditional um, wedding ceremony is if anyone objects to this marriage, let them speak now or forever be silent. That is being directed only to one person. That's being directed to the father of the bride. In other words, if you're going to object, do it now. Otherwise, if you allow these vows to go forward, they're going to stick. And, and that's what that's all about. That's where that tradition comes from. It comes from this Torah portion and the authority that's given to a father. A lot of husbands and a lot of fathers have no idea that they have this authority or that they've been commissioned by God with this responsibility as husband and father for the protection of their household. And it's really tragic because a lot of fathers walk around and say, well, I can't change anything. Yes, you can. On the day that you hear it, you can change it that day before God. And by the way, you know, if somebody just says something and God's not holding you account to, it, it's like hot air. It's gone. It's meaningless. And um, in the case of protecting daughters today, that's a very important provision that's given in the Torah for it. What follows in this Torah portion after the lesson about vows is a historical event. Now, in last week's portion, we talked about um, we talked about Phineas and about how he had dealt with uh, when Balaam had gone down with Balak and the Midianites. They had sent their uh, daughters and sons down to uh, integrate with the children of Israel, caused all kinds of troubles. Um, God was putting a plague on them to destroy them. Phineas stepped up, averted the plague, uh, saved Israel at that point. Well, the guy that was really behind that was Balaam's counsel. And, and he had conspired with the Midianites to do this. So we come to a point here where God then calls upon Moses to avenge for what the Midianites did. And so he specifically calls for them to put together a select team of soldiers uh, for it. 
Let me take you to chapter 31, beginning at verse 1. It says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Avenge the children of Israel um, of the Midianites, and afterwards shalt thou be gathered, afterwards thou shalt be gathered unto your people. And Moses spoke unto the people, saying, Arm ye men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. Of every tribe a thousand, and throughout all the tribes of Israel shall ye send to the war. So there was delivered out of the thousands of Israel a thousand of every tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. Essentially, Israel at this point probably put together what I would um, mildly compare to a special forces team. Instead of just all the regular troops, he put together the very best warriors uh, that they had, and it was a thousand from each tribe. And they went and they did battle with Midian. Now, here's the fascinating thing that took place. When they got back from the battle, every one of the Israelite soldiers returned. None of them died on the battlefield. Now, you got to understand something here. They went against five Midianite kings. We're using swords and shields and spears and so forth. You're telling me that no Israelites died in the battle? Well, in truth of fact, they did. They did die on the battlefield, but God raised them up on the battlefield so that all of them could return. There is a reference to this made in the book of Hebrews that by faith, uh, mothers and wives received back um, their family members from the battlefield. And it's a reference to the resurrection that took place. That was a miraculous war that took place. Now, you got to ask yourself this question, and I cannot, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. That is a prophetic story. You see, in the great tribulation, we're going to be in another battle. And God has this plan. It's explained to us in Revelation chapter 7, that he's going to raise up out of all of the tribes that are listed 12,000 persons from each of those tribes. Not 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 this time. For a total of 12 tribes of 144,000. The 144,000 are the ones who are equipped to do battle on behalf of Israel in the Great Tribulation. In fact, I believe one of the things they're going to do is that as we are in the bands of believers, as we become threatened, the 144,000 are the ones that are going to go out to the edge of the camp and face the enemy. And God's going to do some very interesting things with them. If you thought that was interesting about the Midianites um, uh, all dying and the 12,000 from Israel all coming home, we're going to have the same thing with 144,000. They are all going to come. They're all going to make it. In fact, they are specifically stated as alive, welcoming the Messiah when he comes into Jerusalem. The 144,000, for whatever can be said about all of the different tribulation saints, they make it through the great tribulation. Uh, if you get sealed to be one of the 144,000, you you got a guaranteed ticket 
You cannot die in the Great Tribulation. You're going to make it all the way to the end to see, welcome the Lord back in Jerusalem. And so you're empowered to do the things that you would do during the Great Tribulation. This is a parallel historical story from the ancient times. Moses, just before crossing the Jordan, is able to render a vengeance against the Midianites for what they did to try to harm Israel in this last stage. They didn't come with an army. They came to subvert the thinking and the harm that was going to be done was going to be far more devastating. And Moses is directed by God to, to do this. So what follows now after that in our Torah portion is a review of the different sacrifices uh, that are to be done for the various holidays. And, there, and these are the temple sacrifices to be done. And it ultimately ends up being about the tribes that are on the eastern side of Jordan, the ones that are going to go on the, on the western side. And some of the tribes, because of the grazing land and for the livestock, wanted to stay on that same land that had formerly been the Moabite uh, land, what we call Jordan uh, today. So let's look at the Haftor portion and how does this fit into what we have. And our Haftor portion is suddenly jumps to a very interesting uh, dominant figure uh, for us in the Bible to Jeremiah. And in fact, our portion begins at Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah 1 and 2, and this is the portion that introduced to us this incredible man named Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah uh, was, uh, he was actually a Levite, and uh, he was well known, and yet he um, was a, a real pain in the neck for Israel. He kept warning them that the things that they were, they, they were doing was going to get them in trouble. They, they were taking, making decisions and going ways they shouldn't go. And essentially, Israel at that time was thinking about making agreements with other nations like Egypt to deal with Babylon and things like that. And the parallel here is Israel was entering into covenants with other nations that they shouldn't enter into. They were making declarations of agreement. And these were going to come back to haunt them, namely the Babylonians. <clears throat> this was not going to stop the Babylonians from the future of coming down and attacking Israel uh, for it. And Jeremiah is trying to warn Israel, don't make those statements, don't make those vows, don't make those agreements, don't make those covenants, you know, and so forth. Trust the Lord. And by the way, start obeying the Lord and stop ignoring the Lord. <clears throat> well, as you can imagine, the leadership of Israel did not like that. Uh, disagreed with the idea. I mean, the thought that an enemy would come and destroy Jerusalem is just just so foreign. And, and they just cannot believe that such a thing was. And, oh, by the way, that the temple would be threatened. Oh, no, I can't possibly believe that anything like that could possibly happen. God, God would never permit the Babylonians to come and sack Jerusalem and take the people captive and, and destroy the temple. Never. 
No, but no, nobody would ever believe such a thing. And here's Jeremiah saying it. He's telling them, this is what, you make those agreements, this is what's going to come back to on you. It's going to hurt you greatly. Uh, so frustrated were the uh, rulers in Jerusalem, they ended up throwing Jeremiah in a well. They didn't kill him, they just threw him in a well. Now, those that were the faithful of Jeremiah, um, you know, were, were, they, they were hiding, they were, wanted to help Jeremiah, so he was eventually pulled out of the well. And as the story goes, when the Babylonians really did come uh, and so forth, Jeremiah was taken by some of his brethren, and they escaped to Egypt. Jeremiah wanted to stay in the land, but they actually forcefully took him to Egypt to, so he could escape because they were trying to protect his life. Now, here's the irony of it. Uh, the custom, uh, the explanation is given that once they got down there, and after he'd been down there for a while, then Jeremiah began to prophesy to those people, and they didn't like it, and uh, they ended up, his own brethren ended up killing him. So Jeremiah was slain by his own brethren. Uh, for it. Jeremiah, when it came to the city of Jerusalem, was probably one of the most powerful prophets that had to do with speaking about the harm that would come to the city of Jerusalem, would come to the temple system. There's one other fellow who has been in the history of Israel who comes up to that level. Guess who that is? It turns out it's the Messiah. And in fact, in the days that Yeshua was walking around, talking about, for example, there's a day coming when every stone on this temple will be overturned and that the people will be scattered, you know, throughout the nations and so forth, and that this is, these are the judgments that are coming upon all of Israel. When he would say those things, they said, oh, this is Jeremiah reincarnated. This is Jeremiah that has come back to us. And in fact, in Matthew 16, when Yeshua is with his disciples, and they're up there at Caesarea Philippi, and he asked the question, he says, whom do men say that I am? And if you remember, some of the disciples said right off the bat, they said, well, some say that you might be Jeremiah. Why would they suggest that he might be Jeremiah? It's because a lot of the people had heard the warnings from Yeshua about them getting their lives straight with God, that there was going to be harm coming to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the temple system. And I know it's beyond their imagination that it could happen, but he said it would happen. So they said, oh, he's just like Jeremiah was in making these prophecies and these concerns uh, for it. Jeremiah has a lot more to say than just what was going to happen to Jerusalem and what was going to happen to Israel being scattered to the Babylonians and the future thing. He's one of the strongest prophets that speaks to the greater Exodus when all of Israel is scattered in all the nations and how God will be bringing us back. In fact, I use the expression the greater Exodus because it keys off of something that Jeremiah said in chapter 16 and in chapter 23. The day is coming, Jeremiah said, when you say the word Exodus, you will not be referring to ancient Egypt. 
you'll be referring to when God brings up his people from all the nations of the world, from the north, south, east, west. And oh, by the way, in chapter 23, and he says, and the Messiah is the one that will be bringing you back. Very powerful prophecy. I refer to it as the greater exodus. It's not the exodus from Egypt. It's the greater one that comes from all the nations. Jeremiah is this very, very powerful prophet for it. And I would also remind you that Jeremiah is the prophet who gives us the core passage that tells us about the new covenant, the prophecy of the new covenant that the Messiah came and instituted when the Messiah, where God would take his laws and write them on the tablets of our hearts instead of on tablets of stone. And it would be called a new covenant for all of us. The, um, um, he, he was a very powerful prophet, had a lot to say to the life of Israel. And uh, he, uh, that's the reason why we have him to go with our portion about vows and very powerful things that are said. Our Torah portion is the final one of the book of Numbers. Uh, we are at the portion called Massey. It's Numbers chapter 33. Now, before I get any further into this, let me review just for a moment last Sabbath, uh, the portion that we had there and the Hoftor portion that came with it was the beginning of the first of three Hoftor portions we call the Hoftors of Rebuke. And the reason is, is because we're reading from Jeremiah that we started last week. We're going to read from Jeremiah again this week. And then in the week that follows, um, after next week, we're going to be reading from Isaiah, in particular where Isaiah is saying essentially the same thing that Jeremiah is saying. And these are going to be where the prophets are speaking very sternly to Israel about their misbehavior as a people. And so those Haftorahs line up. Now what will follow after we get past that are the Haftorahs of consolation, uh, which is a very positive and good message that we'll hear, but that'll become later as we get into the book of Deuteronomy. We are at the final portion of the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers was Bamidbar in the wilderness, and this portion concludes properly that book by telling us about the stages and the number of camping places that the children of Israel uh, were in the wilderness after having left Egypt before they went to cross the Jordan into the Promised Land. Uh, join with me. If, let me just read this first part. Numbers chapter 33, verse 1. These are the journeys of the sons of Israel by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies, under the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting places. Now, almost immediately, you have to ask this question. Why did God command Moses, I want you to record every place that you start out on the journey, every, every camping place, I want you to record it. Um, now, if we were in the military, uh, you wouldn't have to command that. That would be automatically done. They, you would be keeping the history 
of, of the unit, the history of, of the army. And in this case, God commands Moses, I want you to record the history of Israel doing this. And we only really understand uh, why he did that when we get to the total number of camping places, because the total number of camping places that Israel journeyed, it turns out to be 42 different camping places. Now, the number 42 is automatically, thematically, uh, very uh, consistent with another theme. And 42 is the number associated with the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is 42 months long. When there's also 42 cities of Israel. And the Messiah in John chapter 10 specifically made reference to the Great Tribulation by saying the following, <clears throat> when they oppress uh, you in one place, flee to the next city. I tell you, you shall not flee to all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man returns. That the limit, the limit now of the camping places that Israel did in the wilderness was 42. The limit of the months of the Great Tribulation is 42. And that the number 42 is God's way of explaining <clears throat> he is limiting what the Great Tribulation is going to be so that it's possible for us to escape, survive, and endure it. And this is in the midst of other words in the prophecy talking about, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would have survived, and other things that speak very ominously of those days. It's limited, and we know the limit is 42. And so this explanation of all these camping places has an immediate correlation to a much greater future prophecy, which has to do with the Great Tribulation, understanding what it is. Now, if you go down and read through here in Numbers chapter 33, and it starts giving you all the different places where they were at. In fact, let me, let me continue reading for you from Numbers 33. Let me go from verse 3. And they journeyed from Ramesses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. That's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, they ate the Passover. They gathered this stuff up the next day. And on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the bread of haste, they left. And that's the reason why on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's a high Sabbath. The journey to leave Egypt began on that day. He goes on to say, And on the next day after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. And while the Egyptians were bearing all of their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, the Lord uh, had also executed judgments on their gods. Part of the explanation, this is a very profound one, is the whole judgment scheme that was in um, Egypt, the, the number of judgments, was to judge the gods of Egypt, to show that their gods whom they were holding to, they're not God. And so the different judgments targeted different gods. Let me just go ahead and in, in advance share this with you. When we get to the end of the age and we get ready for the Great Tribulation, you start looking at those judgments that are going to come in the book of Revelation. Guess what they're on? The gods of this world. 
They're going to be judging the gods of this world, the things that people think are gods. And by the way, people think that trees are God. They think nature's God. Uh, they think that they are gods. Uh, and they have all their agendas that they've elevated to the level of being different gods. And they're all set up against the one true God. In fact, in the midst of them saying all those things, they want to deny the one true God. This is the world we live in. They're godless from the standpoint of the true God, but they fabricate and make all kinds of everything else into gods. So guess what the judgments are going to be on? The gods of this world. Uh, as you look through, just like what happened in the ancient um, Egyptian exodus. The next verse reads, verse 5, Then the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses and camped in Sukkot. The first camping place was called Sukkot. Sukkot means huts, booths, tents. That was the first place. They were not in their cities. They were not in their homes. They set up tents and booths and huffs. They set up temporary shelters for them on their journey. That's also one of our biblical feasts. It's the last one in the order. Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Ingathering. And we teach, and we were, we were given the command from Moses concerning Sukkot, that we are to remember how our ancestors dwelt in booths and huts in the Exodus. Actually, Sukkot is trying to get you to go back to this verse. You remember, it says right here, they went to Sukkot and they camped there first. They had to set up booths and huts and tents. This is the mechanism how they were going to be able to journey through the wilderness, through those 42 camping places. The same thing is true for us. When the days come for the great tribulation to begin and it's time for us to escape, I believe that we're going to eat that Passover, and during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the bread of haste, we're going to escape. It'll be springtime, and we'll escape. And the first place we're going to go to, this is end-time believers, first place we're going to go to is going to be called Sukkot, because we're going to be setting up our tents, our RVs, building the camp for the first time, getting out of the cities. All of those uh, things will be taking place. We'll be organizing ourselves as a group um, and so forth in that. Well, where exactly is Sukkot? I mean, where, where would we go? Well, I believe it's as simple as this. If you've been keeping the biblical feasts, and in particular you've been keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, then you're going to probably go to the first camping place. You're probably going to go where you last kept Sukkot. Because your brethren, you know, whom you have fellowshiped with at the Feast of Tabernacles, have been going there. And so they're all going to be escaping the same time as you, and you'll be able to assemble together at that place. And you've, since you've been practicing and learning how to camp together, you'll be joining with and camping with brethren you know. That will be far safer than you trying to go find a hole in the ground, hide in. Far safer for you to go there. The, uh, and we'll be following the pattern of this book, of this particular chapter. 
You know what? We're, we're beginning to get the drift of Numbers chapter 33. This is prophetic. Why did God ask for Moses to record these places? There's no real benefit to um, the, the first generation that came out. It's just history. They experienced it. They went to these places. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. We went there, and then we went there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Historical for them. Uh, the generation that crossed over into Israel, that crossed the Jordan, what did Numbers 33 say to them? Oh, well, that's what they did with my ancestors. That's the places they camped for my ancestors. At what point does this scripture take on additional significance and could have an effect on a future group of people? It only affects the last generation. It's the last generation that wants to pay attention to this passage of scripture because we can see the pattern of how God caused us to record that because it's going to be a benefit to somebody at the end. Now, what's it going to benefit us? Well, if you go down through the remaining number of places, look like verse 6. And they journeyed from Sukkot and camped in Ethan, which is at the edge of the wilderness. <clears throat> verse 7. And they journeyed from Ethan, and they turned back to Pi. <coughs> Hi, Aroth, pardon me which faces Baal Zephon, and they camp before Migdal. <clears throat> and then the verses that follow are, they left here and they went there. They left here and they went there. They left here, they went here. 42 times. Wow, what exciting reading, trying to figure out how to pronounce all these different places. By the way, with the exception of a couple of these, these aren't really known locations. What they're really describing when they go to different things is things that happened in the wilderness. Things that happened there. And um, as opposed to a physical location or outpost or city or whatever the case may be. And if you examine <clears throat> the meanings of all those places, all the different things they were going through, when they mumbled and grumbled and when they were thirsty and when, when, you know, when they wanted to quail and so forth, you see this pattern <clears throat> of our ancestors essentially receiving instructions from God, but not processing it correctly, not obeying the Lord, and then getting themselves into a series of judgments. You know, as we finished here not too long ago, uh, they led through a series of testings of the Lord till they came up to Kadesh Barnea. They sent the spies into the land, and they rebelled against the Lord of going into the land. They said, the Lord is not with us, they, you know, all of that. And that's when God pronounced judgment on that generation, said they're going to die in the wilderness. They're not going to the promised land. Their children will go to the promised land. And you have all these different events that take place. All these different lessons, and they all have to do with one particular theme, and that is the children of Israel obviously were not comfortable where they were at. They were not settled. They were in a mobile transitional mode, and they got frustrated with each other and frustrated with the Lord and frustrated and to the point 
they began to rebel against the Lord, and they got themselves in all kinds of trouble with one another and with the Lord. Now, Paul summarizes all of this. He summarizes all of this whole chapter for us in 1 Corinthians 10, where he says, Now, all those things that happened in the wilderness are for our admonition and our instruction upon whom will fall at the end of the ages. Well, see, at the end of the ages, that would be the last generation. That would be the last generation that's paying attention to this. And this is a guide book about things that you could be tested with and things, lessons you need to learn now before you get into the Great Tribulation. Now, let me just um, um, step back for a moment and tell you, I've, I've been teaching this for a long time. I've been teaching about the greater exodus. I've been teaching about we're not going to have a rapture. We're, we're all going to go through this experience. Uh, and it's going to be modeled after the exodus that came out of Egypt, but it will be called the greater exodus. And the very tests that took place in the wilderness, um, we're going to be confronted with the same kinds of issues and tests to see if we will learn from it. That's what Paul said, that therefore our instruction, we're supposed to be learning from them. So being a Torah teacher, I teach these. Um, how confident are you, Monty, that of this broad messianic community that you've been teaching the Torah portions, you've been teaching these particular lessons about this, and in previous years you've taught Numbers 33 so that the people understand this is the pattern of what we're going to be going through, these are the lessons we're going to be going through, these are the adjustments we as the last generation have got to make so that we can get through this whole process called the Great Tribulation. How confident are you that the brethren of the Messianic movement have learned this? Uh, the answer is, I'm not confident at all. I believe we're in the same ragtag shape that our ancestors were when we came out of Egypt. When they came out of Egypt, they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know how they were going to get there. Oh, they had heard something about the promised land. They wanted the promised land, but they're, they're, it was more of a dream. It, it, it wasn't something they had seen. And when they came out and they had to deal with all of the issues of being in the wilderness, with no food, no water, all of, you have to rely on the Lord, you have to be dependent upon him, you have to learn his commandments, and you have to, you know, all of this uh, spiritual instruction and so forth. And that wasn't necessarily the reason why they were all excited about leaving Egypt. Oh, I want to go to Mount Sinai. I want to learn the Torah. That was not in their repertoire of desires. But that was their experience that they went through. And my brethren today, in the last generation, their desire is not to go back and learn the lessons that our ancestors didn't learn. That is not what they're interested in. They're interested in, let's get to the kingdom. And oh, by the way, how can I avoid all the bad stuff that's supposed to happen? That's, that's where they're at. And so as a result, I'm not optimistic that my brethren are really learning the lessons from this correctly. The, the, let, let me just summarize, you know, what, what I've been trying to say so you can understand what, what lessons are you talking about, Monty? 
I'm talking about the lessons where what is the purpose of God in all of this? See, God's purpose is far greater than your purpose or my purpose. My purpose is to get saved. My purpose is to be more comfortable. Okay? And by the way, at the age of 73, I can assure you each day I weigh, how can I be more comfortable? Um, that's not what his goal is. His goal is that he wants the world to know who he is. Not only does he want the world to know who he is, he wants his enemies to know who he is. And he wants you and me to know who he is. That's his primary goal. And if you'll get in agreement with his goal, I can assure you it'll be much easier for you for what we'll be going through. Number two, and this is the negative thing, murmuring and complaining doesn't do one bit of good. Murmuring and complaining only brings harm um, to yourself and to other brethren. And every time the children of Israel began to murmur and complain all throughout the wilderness, they paid the price for it. Uh, complaining doesn't change anything. It doesn't make anything better. Uh, being optimistic and, and going forward, that's, those are where the solution's at. Those are where the better things are at. So the part of the lesson that we have here uh, with the understanding of what the Torah portion is, what a lead-in for us to go look at the Haftor portion that goes with this correspondingly. And to do that, we're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 2. Last week, when I shared with you the first Haftor rebuke, we looked at Jeremiah chapter 1. And continuing on with that, we're now going to look at Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 4. And again, this is the second Haftor rebuke. Jeremiah was not liked. He spoke of impending judgment that was coming to Jerusalem and the harm that was going to come from the people choosing to make alliances with others rather than trusting the Lord and trying to maneuver through the Babylonians and the Egyptians and all and the Assyrians and all that was going on, and it did not work for them. It did not work. When they stepped away from the Lord, they walked out from under his protection. And Jeremiah was right there to point that out to him. And the people, quite honestly, did not like Jeremiah, especially the leadership of Israel did not like. He was, he was just a, a, a thorn, um, a burr under the saddle, and they just could never get comfortable with him and, and, and so forth. So here's Jeremiah in his book. He's prophesying, and he's telling them, of very difficult things that are going to take place. And, and, and he, the whole purpose is to try to provoke them to turn back to the Lord. Remember I told there's a great tribulation coming. Numbers chapter 33, there's a great tribulation coming. We're going to go through it. How are we going to go through it? miserable, complaining, complain, not understanding what's going on, or are we going to learn the lessons of that? Here's Jeremiah. 
You're getting ready to go through something very terrible. What are you going to do about it? That's the thrust of the message. Now let me read to you what Jeremiah specifically has to say in this Haftor portion. Again, Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning of verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? And they did not say, Where is the Lord, uh, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, um, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a deep land that no one crossed, where no man dwelt, and I brought them into a fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things. But you came and defiled my land and my inheritance, and you made an abomination. And the priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers have also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied ba- ba- Baal and walked after things that did not profit. Now, let me summarize. God, through Jeremiah, is taking Israel in his day back to what God did when he brought children of Israel out of Egypt. Go back and, and look at that story of when I brought Israel out of Egypt. What injustice did I do to your fathers? What, what did I do that wasn't in your best benefit? What did I do that intentionally harmed you, that hurt you specifically? Show me where I'm responsible for it and blame me for something. That's what Jeremiah is for God. He's saying to Israel, where's the blame I'm supposed to be getting? I mean, you guys are acting like I should be blamed. And, and he goes through and he points out, he said, you know, think about this for a moment. I led them in the wilderness. It was a terrible place. This was not fun. It was hot. It was dry. They were thirsty. There was no food. They didn't have the basics of what they needed. They were dwelling in tents. You know, this, this wasn't fun. So, um, and then guess what happened? Through all of that, I continued to lead them until they made it all the way in the land and they ate fruit from trees. <coughs> Pardon me. What is the bad thing that I did? I delivered you. I brought you out of Egypt. That's what I promised you I would do. I promised your father I would bring you to this land. I did. I did what I promised. So what is the complaint you have against me? Well, he goes on to further say, and by the way, you know what? The next generation after that generation that messed that up, the one that actually went into the land... Did they obey the Lord? No. They didn't obey the Lord. They turned to idols. They, you know, the priests were rendered useless. Uh, all kinds of things happened. It wasn't good. You know, the, all the things that had been set up, they didn't do. Um, now, the Hoftor portion is trying to get us to see this dynamic. So let me postulate forward into the future for us. Remember, I posed the question to me, Monty, do you think that the end-time believers will really get this? And the answer is no, I don't think they will. By the way, Moses agrees with me on this. 
Jeremiah agrees with me on this. And by the way, all the other prophets of Israel agree with me on this. The last generation is going to get saved by the grace of God. There is not going to be any of them that are smart enough to figure out what's going on. This is going to be difficult for the people uh, for it to do. And so we have this Haftorah of rebuke that is given to us. Now it goes through and it reads um, even further. But I want, to, I, want you to, I want to take you to verse 13 and kind of cap this here as to what Jeremiah says in this whole portion. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, to hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Okay. So rather than let's hold to the instruction that God has given to us, no, let's set that aside. Let's do our own thing. Rather than have a fountain of flowing living waters, Let's build cisterns so we can trap water that comes along, and let's make sure that those cisterns have cracks and holes in them so when they collect the waters, they drain out and you have no benefit of them. Boy, does that pretty much put it in perspective about what it's like to, one, trust the Lord versus do your own thing. And by the way, your own thing is you think you're doing the right thing. We are living in a world where we do have a lot of believers. And they all have the same motivation. They want to do the right thing. They want to live. We have a choice. Do we go back and do what the Lord said? Or do we do what we think is right? See, that's the whole story of the Haftor's of Rebuke. Should we just let the Lord lead us into the land, or should we send spies in and we'll figure out how to do it? And it, it just continues. Should we get through the wilderness like the Lord tells us how to do it, or should we murmur, complain, and, and try to figure out how to do it on our own? Well, the future question for us is we're getting ready to go through the Great Tribulation. Will we attempt to save ourselves, or will we be patient? Stand still and watch the salvation of God as he delivers us. It's a really tough question. It's very hard to answer until you get to that moment. Anticipating that question, I'm not optimistic. I'm praying, oh God, please, by your grace and mercy, look down upon us and be very kind to us. So that is our Torah portion, Haftorah portion for this week. We can now conclude the book of Numbers and the second Haftorah of Rebuke. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would now turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at verse 33, where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin. And as you open the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the time and the opportunity once again that we can worship together and that we can study your word and your teaching. Father, I pray that everyone is blessed by this teaching and this time and this Sabbath, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that it would be your words that are spoken and that your word would once again encourage us in our most holy faith. 
We bless you and we thank you on the Sabbath and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portions this week are Matot and Maseh. These portions are the final two portions of the book of Numbers. This is also my birth portion. Uh, the week that I was born, these are the portions that were given uh, in the readings for that week. And this was the portions that I taught at my bar mitzvah. Uh, these portions have a great deal of content in them. It begins in Numbers chapter 33 that talks about the law of vows, what the power of a vow is, and what the authority of a, that a father or a husband has over the annulling of vows. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. In chapter 31, uh, there is the story of the battle against the Midianites. The Lord calls uh, Moses to speak to uh, the Israelites to gather 12,000 soldiers, shock troopers who are going to go and take vengeance upon those that caused Israel to sin. Back in the story of Phineas, it was the Midianites that sent their daughters to fraternize with the sons of Israel, and that it was uh, that now vengeance is being called upon to remove them from the face of the earth. And what continues in that chapter is all of the division of the plunder and the spoils of that war. In chapter 32, uh, it talks about certain tribes, a couple of tribes, wanting their land and their inheritance after the children of Israel enter into the promised land, that they are wanting to camp on the eastern side of the Jordan. And these uh, tribes, the tribe, the children of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, are intending to, for their land and their inheritance to be in what was formerly the land of Moab, where the children of Israel are dwelling right now at this time. And so that story goes, and it, it takes the shift of all of the content about the end of the book of Numbers, all has to do with the giving of the inheritance of the land. And that is what is going to be a theme throughout this teaching and for the final chapters of the book of Numbers. In chapter 33, where the second portion, Maseh, begins, that is the journeys of the tribes of Israel, going through the, all of the places where they went, the stages, the locations where they went after leaving Egypt. And there is a huge uh, prophecy and a connection to all of those teachings um, and all of those places um, that we won't talk about today with our Brit Hadashah portion, but what is talked about is after the children of Israel conquer the promised land, going into the promised land, we then need to appoint the boundaries of the land of Canaan and how the inheritance will fall upon the children of Israel, all the tribes of Israel, and the various territories that they will occupy after crossing the Jordan. We also have instructions for the establishment of the cities for the Levites, the cities of refuge, and also a few other commandments in chapter 36 uh, that deals with how the inheritance will remain with the tribes and the inheritance of the possession of the land is to remain territorially with each tribe as it is given. All right, so how does this connect, of course, to the Brit Hadashah? I first want to start in Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 33. We always seem to go to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, when the Messiah is giving the Sermon on the Mount, which I like to co consider to be the greatest Torah teaching that's ever been given, because many of the things that he says and teaches are about the law. They're from the law. You've heard it said this, this commandment from the law, but I say to you, and, he all, and the Messiah always presents it and takes it a step further. He prefaces the entire Sermon on the Mount with, don't think that I come to destroy the law. Don't even think that I'm saying you've heard it said this, but that doesn't matter anymore. No, he's not come to destroy the law, 
but to fill it up full and perfecting the law. This is what these teachings, this is what these laws and these commandments are for, that we can say, hey, this is, you know, we were told and taught this in Torah, but the Messiah here is saying this instead. So here at uh, verse 33 of Messiah, or uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5, it says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. God, um, the Messiah here is speaking about oaths vows, things that you would say, promises that you will make. In fact, um, all those different kinds of things from a vow to a promise to an oath, they all kind of fall in the same category. Now, what's been taught before is that a vow is perhaps the strongest form of this manner of speech. That when we, we've taught biblically that when you make a vow, you are uttering a change into the creation. That when God created the world, he did so by vow, by speaking, by the things that he said. And so in the giving of a vow, we need to be very mindful of the power of speech that a vow or an oath or a promise actually is. What it means. If you've ever heard, had somebody who's ever broken a promise before you, it, it, it hurts, it cuts, because somebody gave you their word, but they did not keep their word. They did not follow it. And so when the, any of this manner of speech is given, there is, a, there is an impact to it that can spiritually and, and emotionally affect someone who you gave their pro, your, a promise to or an oath or a vow. This is why adultery is such a, a heinous sin that has huge ramifications upon not only the two people involved, but upon everyone else. The witnesses of those vows, of that covenant being made, if that is ever torn apart, if that is ever broken, it is harmful not only to the parties involved, but to any of the witnesses or anyone else around and surrounding the situation. Oaths and vows and promises are very important to us. It is how we make a commitment. It's how we make a commitment to love someone else. It's how we make a commitment to show our love to the Lord. These things are not to be taken lightly. Now, I've heard it said many, many years. You're going back to Numbers chapter 30, where the, the, the bulk of that chapter is all about how that a father or a husband can annul the vow of either his daughter or his wife, respectively, that in the day that he hears the vow, in the case of a father, if he hears his daughter make a vow or hears that his daughter had made a vow at some point in time, the day that he hears it, he has the power and the authority to annul the vow, to make it of no consequence. And the same thing for a husband, that he can annul the vow of his wife. And that's the, the bulk and the majority of that chapter. And I've heard all the critiques of that chapter, that this is clearly showing about where God is uh, uh, obviously chauvinistic and that men have this greater rule and dominance over women. Now, that was the judgment from the garden, uh, unfortunately, but that, that this is somehow, I mean, it's all like this passage actually causes some to struggle 
with following the rest of Scripture and, and the Bible and the Torah and the Word of God. That is particularly for women that they, if they feel like that this is this is an unfair commandment given toward them, that then they, uh, it's all like that, that they they don't have any place or they don't have a place in the kingdom or that God loves men more than women or something along those lines. I, whatever varying degree of, of complaint or critique, you might have heard it yourself. The key part about that chapter, though, is this, is that at the beginning of the chapter, it says when a man makes a vow, everything that he has said, he is held to. Under by under God under 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 heaven and 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 swear whatever he swears by and whatever vow he makes he is held to it by the word of what he said. The thing about us human beings is we sometimes say the wrong thing. Sometimes we misspeak. Sometimes we don't mind our words very well. The greater part of that chapter has more to do with the fact that a man is held to a certain standard that he cannot take back the words that he has said. Whatever he has said, he must do according to his vow or the oath that he has made. In the case of any woman or daughter that makes that vow, she has a, she's got a protection. She's got a boundary, a barrier, somebody that can, that, that can protect her from a point in time that maybe she didn't said something that she wishes she could take back. This is more a layer or a level of protection for a woman when she makes a vow versus a man who everything that he says he must do. Now, let's set that, let's set that whole concept aside. Now, let's talk about what the Messiah said. Because the Messiah gives a greater piece of advice to all men and to all women Rather than looking at what might be the necessary execution of a certain commandment that comes from Numbers chapter 30, what does the Messiah say here? He says, look, you, you can make oaths, you can make these things, but I say, don't swear at all. Don't make vows. Don't make, Because if you have to be held to the word that you said or to swear by something else, things that are outside of your control, don't swear by heaven, that belongs to God. Don't swear by the earth, that belongs to God. Don't swear by Jerusalem, that belongs to God. And don't even swear by your own head, like I, 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 I pledge to you my life that I will do A, B, and C. He says, don't even do that, because you don't control every aspect of your life. You can't even control what the color of your hair is. So don't swear at all. The greatest lesson out of all of this is this. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. This is the case in, in, in all manners, and in, in all walks of life. This is good advice applicable to the youngest child and to the oldest uh, elderly person of the community. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Whatever you say, do it, but don't, but, but we're not saying that you all that always make pledges and oaths and try to sell yourself to somebody and say, no, 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 you can trust me because I, I promise to do this. Don't even do that. Just speak plainly. Straight, be, be straight with one another. If you agree with something, say yes. If you disagree with something, say no. Now, there's always a lot of gray area that we always deal with in our, in, in our day-to-day lives. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes the answer is yes with qualification. Sometimes the answer is, well, initially no, but, you know, all of these different answers that we might give in our day-to-day life. But ultimately, the Messiah is trying to teach us, be very mindful of what you say. 
what you speak with the power of speech that it has. And we've taught many times over, if we wanted to go to James chapter three and talk about the, the power that the tongue has and the things that, and, and the kinds of things that we can say to one another and speak over one another. We, we mentioned this when we're talking about leprosy and spiritual leprosy that we can say all in all, it has to do with this. Be mindful of what you say and what you speak. Because the power of speech is that God put inside each and every one of us. We're made in the image of God. That same power of speech is what created the world and heaven and earth to begin with. So if we're made in the image of God, God is actually giving us a great measure of power by the things that we can say and the changes to the world that we can enact by the things that we say. So be mindful of what you say. Don't make any oaths or pledges if, the, if you're following what the Messiah is saying here, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Amen? Now let's turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. There's a very specific verse that if you've ever read this verse before, you might not connect it back to a previous story or you might actually like stop and think if you think about it for a minute. When did that happen in the Bible? The verse is Hebrews chapter 11. And it is at verse 35, where it says this, or let, let me go ahead and begin. This is the faith chapter, of course, where it says, by faith, uh, various men of, of the scripture believed this, did these things, did, did this, did that, anything along those lines. And where it says it's talking about, it's talking about David, it's talking about Samuel, it's talking about all these different things. Verse 35 says this, by faith... Women received their dead raised to life again. Very, uh, uh, it, it's talking about various things that have happened previously in the Old Testament. And we're wondering, and you look back and you're like, what story is being referenced there? What story in our Old Testament, in our scripture, at any given point in time, that, that men went to war, went to battle, and that women received back their dead raised to life again? If you go and search, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything or any battle or story where that took place. But what is actually in there is if you go back to our Torah portion for this week, there's a battle with the Midianites. And there's something that's very fascinating that takes place in the reporting of the spoils of war and what takes place, uh, takes place after that. If you look in uh, Numbers chapter 31... Uh, beginning at verse 48, it says this, it says the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the captains, the thousands, the captains of hundreds came near to Moses and they said, Moses, your servants have taken count of the men of war who were under our command and not a man of us is missing. Therefore, we have brought an offering before the Lord and every man found of ornaments of gold, armlets and bracelets and all these other things that were spoiled from the war. Can you believe that, that a war that, that these men went to war against other kingdoms and there's not a single man that died as a result of the war? How, how is that even possible? Obviously, there needs to be some sort of miraculous thing that took place here in this battle that no man was missing. What? I believe this is a hidden message of the power of God, the power of resurrection that God has in shown us here in the scripture, but you might've missed it the first time that you ever read it, where it says that not a man was missing. Does that mean that everybody was just perfect in their battle and they fought and they won and nobody died? 
How about this? What if those men actually received fatal blows during the war, but the Lord resurrected them and that every single man returned back to his family as a result of the war? Now, we could speculate and say, well, maybe that's reading between the lines. However, that verse there from Hebrews is very curious when it says that women received back their dead, raised from the dead. I would think if there was any sort of story of a mass resurrection, that that might be a more well-known story. But because there's not one that pops into our head of like, well, wait a minute, when did that happen? What we can ascertain if we look back at this battle that took place back in Numbers chapter 31, that this could have been the fulfillment of what was spoken by the writer of Hebrews. So one of those small little hidden messages uh, in our Torah portion that has a interesting parallel or a verse reference here to the New Testament. All right, so with that being the Torah portion of Matot, with this week being a double portion, I now want to talk a little bit about Maseh, which is the stages of the journeys that the children of Israel took. Now, the whole goal of the wrap-up of the book of Numbers is the journeys in the wilderness, where they went, what they do, what are the battles they they fought, and now we're about to enter into the promised land, and why did we do all this? Why did we go through the wilderness? Why did we account for every place that we went? Because the goal was to get to the promised land, to receive the inheritance that God has for us. And so that's what the entire theme of the rest of this Torah portion is all about. If you would now turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Here, there's many encouraging passages uh, here in the New Testament when you're looking at all the the letters, uh, the letters of Paul, the letters of Timothy, of of speaking about the power of the testimony that it is to believe in Yeshua the Messiah and what he has done for us, delivering us from, from death to life. And these are this entire teaching of salvation is a parallel of the salvation the children of Israel received back in the time of Moses. The, the parallel is uncanny. This is why we teach the Brit Hadashah portions concurrent with the Torah portions as well because of the patterns and the parallels of Israel being saved from bondage and slavery and how we believers are saved from the bondage of sin and death because of the mistakes and the sin and the ways of the world. But through the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah and believing in him, we are given eternal life. We are given blessing. We are given an inheritance. Let's begin now in Philippians chapter three, uh, beginning at verse seven. With that as a preference here, this this is one of the things I want to talk about at how the, the whole journey of the children of Israel from the journeys they were in the wilderness and the whole once they're in the land, they're going to divide the land by lot to whoever. And everyone is going to become citizens of the land of Israel, the new, the promised land that they now will have their own house, their own possession, their own uh, uh, belongings and, and things that, that when you're a slave, you don't own anything. But when the children of Israel go to the promised land, they will have a a domain over their own land, their own possessions, and that they will become citizens of the kingdom of Israel. So with that as a preface, what's the parallel now here to the testimony of Messiah? Philippians 3, uh, beginning at verse 7, it says this, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Messiah Yeshua, my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's interesting that the very first part of this, I, I think is inter- it's, it's fascinating that it says, look, everything that you have, you need to count it as a loss. You need to set those things aside if you're going to follow the Messiah. As he said to the rich young ruler, sell everything that you have, get rid of all of your possessions, and then come follow me. And that uh, the, the apostles here are teaching that we are to count all of those things for a loss. Anything that we might have, set, those are counted as rubbish. Those don't count for anything. But what having faith in, in the Messiah, that counts for everything. This goes back to the children of Israel leaving Egypt. When they left Egypt, they, 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 yes, they were slaves. Yes, they, but they, they did have their own homes that they lived in and the places, and, and they had some belongings that belonged to them, the clothes on their back or whatever possessions they might have had. But if they were going to be saved from slavery of Egypt, they had to set all those things aside. Do you want to stay and keep these worldly possessions, this little bit that you have, and ignore the gift and the calling of God for you to then lead, be led, and follow Him? Because I guarantee you, the inheritance in the land, in the land of Israel, and whatever the tribes received back in the ancient land of Canaan, was greater than whatever they were given in Egypt. But they had to learn in their hearts to set aside those things. Now, that older generation, they struggled with that. They struggled with set aside, setting aside their belongings and their possessions that they had in Egypt. And there was, as many times they wanted to go back to Egypt during these stories and these journeys in the wilderness. What we have to learn in our modern times is that we have to set aside perhaps things that maybe we wanted or we desired or maybe possessions we have. But if we're going to serve the Lord, if we're going to follow him and have a testimony of believing in him, we have to set those things aside and count those as not worth anything, knowing that the testimony and the covenant we have in with Yeshua is everything that we need. Let me continue on. Verse 12, Philippians 3. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which is Messiah Yeshua, has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this in mind. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah 
who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. This is the, the teaching of, of the Apostle Paul here, speaking to us and saying, look, many have followed after other earthly things. And in fact, if you look at the, read the journeys and the stages and the places where the children of Israel were, there's a couple of those locations that will pop out to you as saying, how about Kibroth um, Hatava, the, the graves of uh, craving. The place where the children of Israel, they were hungry, they wanted food, they wanted meat, they didn't want to eat their flocks, but they wanted to, uh, but God sent them quail, and then they all died of a plague while the meat was still in their mouths as they were chewing it. Clearly, their God at that point in time, because of their greed, was what was in their bellies, what they were eating. Worldly things, earthly things became their God. How about when they made the golden calf? Because those are the things that we're reminded of. All the journeys of the children of Israel in the wilderness didn't go so well for them sometimes. And if we look back and we realize th these are some of the, 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 the events that took place, we, we can look back at those things and say, look, people have fallen by the wayside. People who were not mature were not ready to be citizens of the kingdom. The ones that follow wholeheartedly after the Lord those are the ones who are ready to be citizens of the kingdom. Now, after we've reviewed those stages, instead of looking back, let's now look forward at what is the inheritance of the land going to be? Where's the lot going to fall? Who, what land, what territory are we going are, 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 are to be able to be in and, and do these things? And this is what the whole ra rest of the chapters of Numbers are about. The dividing of the land, how the inheritance will be shared and parsed out to all the people who made it who made it to the promised land, this inheritance that God was intending to give us so that we can be citizens of that kingdom. The, 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 this is about reaching forward to what God is giving to us. We do study and we review the Torah. We review all the stories of the children of Israel in the wilderness and how we learn to not make those same mistakes, how to ensure that, they, uh, that we don't repeat those same mistakes, that those things don't happen again. But ultimately, let us not take our eyes off the prize, off of the goal. Because even something, even in the st study of Torah, it, 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 it sounds very controversial to say this, but even the study of Torah can become an idol and a god to some people. To keep looking back and just keep doing it. And what are the stories of old? And yes, we have this and, 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 and Israel is this and these are our fathers and we're doing these things here. But if you never lift your eyes and see the future goal, the future inheritance, what God is doing for the whole world. And all you do is just dig into what came before. That's what we can't do. The ones who, did, who, who cannot get past the stories of old, the things that came before, what we had before, what used to happen. You, you sit, sit there and all you talk about is the history of things without ever looking forward or learning from those lessons to then apply them to what now needs to be done in the future. That's the testimony of the people that died in the wilderness. They kept looking back. They kept looking back to Egypt. They kept looking. And one of the things that we as believers, especially those that have a testimony of Yeshua the Messiah, we can't keep looking back and live like we're still in the wilderness. 
We can't keep looking at the wilderness story and say, man, that was when the children were, they were struggling with this and struggling with that or whatever. Now we can take some of those lessons and apply it when we struggle in other parts of our life. But as born again believers in Messiah Yeshua, if we believe in the promise of the kingdom and the kingdom that is coming in the future, then what we do is we keep our eyes on the prize. We look forward to that and we work and labor toward that and not dwell on the fact we're in the wilderness. If we dwell on the fact we're in the wilderness, we become discouraged. Oh, it's the same bread every single day. It's the same thing as a day after day, over and over and over again. And man, it would have been better just the way that it was, the way that it was 10 years ago. I wish I could just go back and I could just live that because man, today is just a struggle and all these things. That's somebody who dwells and lives in the wilderness that does not have their eyes up and upon the hope and the promise of what God is doing for it as a born-again believer, the things that we are capable of to minister and to change the world and to speak life into other people by the power of our speech, by the power of a vow, that we can cause covenants to be formed and God and his people to become one and whole by the things and the actions that we do in this life, even while in the wilderness. We cannot dwell and live in the wilderness but keep our eyes on the goal, the inheritance, so that we can be citizens of the kingdom. We have to press on past the journeys. We have to press on. The mistakes, were, mistakes were made, but we can continue to focus ahead on doing better in our life so that we can join together with the Lord in his kingdom. Turn with me now to Ephesians, to the first chapter. Beginning at verse 3, in every single one of these letters, the, the, the introduction is always one of like encouragement, of peace, and, and really just sort of sums up what it is to have a testimony of the Messiah. What it really means to, to, to believe in him, and it's like th this is the encouraging message coming from Paul immediately. The first time you meet Paul, the first thing he's saying to you is like, hey, have you, have you heard about Jesus Christ? Have you heard about the about Messiah Yeshua? This is what he did. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is what I believe, and you should believe it too. That's what the, the content of these letters often is. So let us begin here at verse 3 of the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> and let's continue on how this relates to this inheritance that we have received from the Lord through our faith in Messiah Yeshua and how it relates to the inheritance of the children of Israel. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Yeshua the Messiah to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. <laughs> Look, many of us, we all come from our families. Some of us have good families. Some of us have not so good families. And sitting and he's like, we all love our families, of course. But our families are never perfect. They really never are. And sometimes, you probably have said at some point in time, you know, you can't choose your family. You kind of wish you could choose your family, but you're sometimes stuck with your family. But you know what? We all have a blessing in the fact that as a believer in Yeshua the Messiah, we get adopted into the family of God. How amazing is that? That we get adopted in to be a part of the family of the one who created heaven and earth and who loves his creation and pours out his spirit and all the blessings and the inheritance of the land. What is that house like? 
How big is that house? How much food is on that table? How much love and joy and, and, and everything that's good about family, how much of that is in the family of God? A lot. And that's what we get with our belief in Yeshua. Continuing on, verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in which also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of His glory. Amen. There it is. He says the inheritance, we have been given the inheritance of the promises and the possession. And if you go back, what inheritance means, inheritance is this, this blessing that comes from the family. You're in your family. This blessing is owned by those that came before you. But then it's something that those that came before you and those that are above you, your father, your heavenly father, he then turns and he gives it to you. Everybody loves a good inheritance. What, what you almost always hope, you're like, some people might think it's like, man, I wish there'd been some long lost relative would show up and say, hey, here's your inheritance. Especially if you ever feel like you don't have much of anything. Well, the slaves in Egypt didn't feel like they had much of anything either. And so when the Messiah comes and sends a redeemer and says, I have an inheritance for you. It's like a long lost relative coming and redeeming you and, and then bringing you everything that you ever needed. And it came out of nowhere. Well, what it actually came from is it came from those that have a love for you. It came truly from your family. Since we all were originally born into the family of God, Adam being formed in the image of God, this is what it always the way it always should have been. We always should have been in the family of God. But because of our sin, because of our, our falling away from the creation and, and the glory of God, we must all be adopted back in so that we can once again be the receivers of that inheritance. This is his purpose. This is his goal. This is the message in the gospel of salvation, the story of salvation. Wrap it all up about the children of Israel saved from Egypt, from everything that they experienced, hard bondage, labor, salvation, deliverance from Egypt. And then, you know, if they were able to make it all the way through the wilderness and do these things, and then once you get the land, get the possession, this is the goal. This is the entire story. This is the end of the story of salvation, when the inheritance is received. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's the message of the children of Israel. This is what God is doing for his people, giving us a, 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 a possession to, that, that is for us, that is, that is for us to receive in our testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. And there at the very end, what I just read there, it said this, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Until the redemption 
of the purchased possession. What, what is that? That implies that there's still something more to come. Remember, eyes on the prize, remember? The possession, especially for those that are us, that are scattered in the nations. You know, Paul, Paul's writing this letter to the people of Ephesus. He wrote many other letters to the people that are also in other places. Scattered about, scattered into the nations, all of the lost of the tribes of Israel, scattered into the nations, knowing that, you know what, there is still a a future redemption to come, a redemption that has not happened yet, and that we are looking forward to, again, when we can be restored back to the possession and the inheritance of our forefathers. If you are of the tribes of Israel, and I don't just mean physically born of the tribes of Israel, but if you've been spiritually adopted back into the tribes of Israel and count yourself among the family of God and in the people of God, then there is an inheritance in the land that belongs to you. That when the future redemption takes place and when the kinsman redeemer, when when a member of our family that we find ourselves in shows up with all power, with all riches, maybe not in the form of earthly riches, but with all the riches of heaven comes to this earth and all the kings of the earth that all have their own possessions and think that they have, they've purchased their, their possession here and they've gathered all this wealth, this earthly wealth. And then suddenly some heavenly body comes in, begins a transaction by saying, nope, I'm going to buy it back from you because it belongs to my children. It belongs to my family member because I am his kinsman redeemer and I will redeem the possession that you purchased with earthly things. And you know what? With the power of heaven, that possession is now not yours, but I'm going to now give it back to my people, the people of my family, those that are the original possessors of that inheritance of that land. That's what's coming in the future. That's what the future redemption of Israel looks like. The Messiah comes, purchases the land, whatever debt is owed to the ones, to to the occupiers of the land, whatever debt they need to, to count themselves square, God will pay it, whatever they deserve, whatever they're asking for, God will give that to them. And then after purchasing the land, God will have the, will be the ownership of of the earth, the earth being his footstool, and he's sitting there and it's like, does he want to be king over an empty kingdom? No. He wants to be a king over the servants of the land. So what he's going to do, he has all this land now. You know what? I'm going to go to the descendants of those I made covenant with before. I made covenant with their ancestors, but I'm now going to go to their descendants because of my covenant with their ancestors. I'm going to go to them. And I'm going to come tell them, I'm going to gather them up from where they are, and I'm going to place them in the land and give them the inheritance that I have now in my possession once again. That's what God will do at the end of the age. That's what the, the, what's the, what the return is going to look like. It'll be kind of like the children of Israel going into the promised land. They didn't know what they were going to get. They cast lots and figured out, all right, here's going to be my territory here, and this is going to be their territory here. And suddenly, wow, look at Look at what we have. Take a breath of fresh air of of, of the new land and the gift God has given to us. It'll be kind of like that because we'll get to the kingdom and it'll be like, wow, this is great. And the Lord's going to say, this is yours. And we'll sit there and like, what a blessing. From the world that I once lived in, from the slavery that I once was in, and now I get this. What a great day that will be. What a great blessing that will be. And that is the story of the inheritance that God gave to the children of Israel 
and that the Messiah will deliver to us when he returns to this earth once again. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time and this teaching. Father, I pray that we are encouraged and blessed on this Sabbath day. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that we are encouraged in our most holy faith. I pray that everyone has a wonderful, restful Shabbat on this week. And we thank you, Lord, for the blessing and the promises that you've always given to us and the inheritance that we are looking forward to in the kingdom. We love you, bless you, and thank you. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shabbat shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.